Hello and welcome to Brokenomics and in this episode we're going to be looking at the economics of the empire and I'm very lucky to be joined by a scholar, Nima Parvini. Hello. Dan, thank you very much for having me. Uh, no, thank, thank you for coming in. Uh, should, we, should we start with a little bit about your journey? Uh, mm -hmm. How did you come to be where you are today and um, your, your thinking on economics? How has that evolved over time? Right. Uh, well, I should say I've just written this uh, this yes. book, uh, The Prophets of Doom, but buy it now. Um, and um, the um, the book I wrote before that, which is a, then of which this is sequel to, mm. is called The Populist Delusion. The Populist mm. Delusion. Um, but the book I wrote before that was called The Defenders of Liberty, which was essentially a defense of classical liberalism from a free market point of view. Um, and for that book, I had all sorts of funding from um, F.A. Hayek Scholarship and uh, the Mises Institute, and I had okay. quite a lot of help from the kind of libertarian world. You would have described yourself as a libertarian or Austrian economist. At yeah, the time. yeah, but I mean, back this uh, this was. I mean, I wrote that book came out in twenty twenty, but I wrote it back in two thousand eighteen, yeah. and at that time, I was, you know, quite free market in my thinking. Um, the thing that really and in that book, if you see, there's a there's a there's a chapter on uh, the Machiavellians and James Burnham. There's, there's a chapter on Machiavelli as okay. the start of liberalism, which is not where most most people start liberalism with John Locke and Thomas Hobbes. Um, yes, th I, those guys normally get pulled more into the elite theory and the and the rule of power. It, it, exactly, but I was trying to make an argument in that book that actually Machiavelli was thinking in quite a modern way uh, he was thinking in uh he, he would he'd already made a break with uh the way uh kind of a medieval scholastic would be thinking or something like that he was much more realist and he was thinking on the level of individual incentives so if you think like Ma machiavelli would say well you know the first if you're a king the foot and you've got the two guards on the door you have to think about well, have you paid them enough that they're not going to? They're going to when somebody tries to kill you that they'll kill them, mm. not that they'll be paid off to kill you, right? Well, so when you consider it in this context, it's a very practical book. Mm -hmm. So it, I, I, and what I tried to do in the Defenders of Liberty was try to take the lessons of elite theory and almost kind of save classical, econ classical liberalism and the kind of free market way of thinking from from itself and try to update it and uh kind of make it relevant for today again hmm. um but then when i came to write populist illusion i went into each of those thinkers more uh likes of mosca pareto robert michels carl schmidt uh bertrand de juvenel and um i start and and burnham himself and also uh Paul Gottfried and uh, Sam Francis as well. Um, and I came to see that li liberalism is trying to do something impossible, which is it is a desire to escape from politics. Okay, the desire to escape from politics, to try to separate politics from economics, to try to separate politics from the individual, to try to and um, if you really understand what I'm saying in Populist Illusion and what those, what those thinkers are saying, 
um, in Populist Delusion, really they're saying that this is a fool's errand. You, there is no outside, like you cannot get away from the reality of power. Yes. And that politics presupposes all other things. Mm. Right. And there's no outside of this. Uh, well, including the, the, the Austrian economy. response to that would be to try and say, okay, well, we can roll back the state and we can, we can lessen the influence of this, but that doesn't actually ever manifest. I mean, it's just impossible mm. because the, 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 the very first thing that, um, that you get to is that in order to have trade at all, you need some sort of force to safeguard the trade. Mm. And where you have that force, politics is already born. Yes. So, so, that, so there's basically no, um, I've come to the conclusion that the reality of power is such, you're never going to have the situation where they're just going to leave you alone. Well, well the, the libertarians would say, you know, libertarians are not anarchists. They, they would say that the, um, the essential function of the state is effectively just to secure its property rights. Mm. Um, and and, and oh no, I, th I think you mentioned to me earlier that there's been a number of examples of that that is manifested today for the US enforcing shipping lanes, for example. Mm. Yes. Um, you know, you will take the dollar, you will settle your oil trade in dollar, although that's starting to fray around the edges mm -hmm. now. But there have been examples going back to, I know, I know you highlight um, Genghis Khan. It was essentially, okay, the, 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 this is the road system. Mm -hmm. um, we are going to crush any bandits. You get, your, you get your token, your stick to show that you're, you're one of our traders. Um, and trade can begin, but the the underlying uh, premise of all of this is man with the sword somewhere. Yes, and I, I think the I guess the uh, so you're talking about like the, the the kind of night watchman state style libertarian or classical liberal guy who's like oh well yeah okay we understand the reality of power mm. but uh, we're going to limit it to just these functions okay mm. and I think the I mean to put it really crudely it is just folly to imagine that the man with the sword is going to be neutral. Mm. Like, let's pretend it's Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan's not going to be neutral. He's going to be pro-Genghis Khan, for one, right? So you, you understand <laughs> what I'm saying, right? Yes. Like, well, let's imagine like, this guy, yeah, we give him the big sword, yep. he protects our trade, and he's not going to do anything else. Mm. He's never going to interfere. He's not, I mean, he's going to want certain things. Like yes. He want to make sure his taxes are paid to him and so on and so forth. Um, and then another problem is the nature of power itself, which I, I do talk about in Defenders of Liberty, but I expand on greatly in Populist Illusion and also in this book, Buy It Now, etc., um, which is that power wants to grow. That which is not... Does it uh, have to grow? Well, that which is not growing is dying. So it's going to look to expand itself. And if it's not expanding itself, then it's already in a downward, it's already decaying, already shrinking, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and is probably working in the service of another power, right? To give an example, is British power growing in the world? No, it, it's yes. working in the service of American power because it's quite clear that the American empire kind of is the, is the big show in town at the moment. Mm. So in terms of our own imperial ambitions as a, as a nation, they have been subsumed to the empire that follow the British empire. So it's, no, mm. it's, it's not, not even a case of growing or shrinking. It's already dead when it comes to the British empire, okay? Yes. Um, and you can actually see, I mean, these are the things that people like Oswald Spengler and others talk about, 
once you get the birth of the kind of conservative who's trying to preserve and maintain what you've got shows already over it's like um hauling okay. yourself in a castle and thinking right I, all i'm going to do is try to maintain this castle against everything else rather than saying i'm going to conquer that land and that land and that so land. In, in the beginning there is the friend enemy distinction and it is it is brutal and clear and the friend enemy distinction is very useful for winning wars winning the power in the first place but it's not such a useful methodology for building a bridge or a dam or or a pier or or something like that. And that's when the the garnish of the uh, of the legal system starts to appear. So 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 it, I mean, if if you want to put it in really brute terms, the the force creates a safe space to use that phrase, right? Genghis Khan has created your mm. safe space. He's protecting the borders, and within his boundaries, anybody everybody is a friend. Friends of Genghis Khan, let's just say. Okay. And the friends of Genghis Khan can get together and build a bridge. Because you cannot be in the territory of Genghis Khan if you are not his friend. Simple as that. So every, right, everyone's yeah, he's a gonna, If you're not a friend of Genghis Khan, he's going to kill you. Mm. But if you make peace with that fact and you are a friend of Genghis Khan, mm. the community of Genghis Khans can build a bridge. Okay? Mm. And then you can start having arguments about economics and, like, is the best way to build a bridge through the socialist method or the free trade method or whatever else. But the fact of the matter is, is that politically that's what's going on, okay? And what the problem with classical liberalism and libertarianism as a viewpoint is that it loses that friend, it loses the importance of that friend-enemy distinction. Um, so the rise of the conservatives is, is, is long after Genghis Khan is in his... Yeah, yeah, so the right, I mean, the rise of the conservative who tries to maintain he's already arrived at a point where the empire's where the empire's on a downward swing so it's only going to go down from there if that makes any sense mm. um the, the importance of this though is that it also then what what your economic policy is going to be is then going to be dictated by the needs of the power in the first place if that makes any sense mm. so when an empire is rising when it's uh expanding when it's conquering uh it tends to uh serve the interest of that empire to be quite protectionist i.e they because they're looking to expand they need to stop people trying to trade into it if that makes any sense because they're trying to expand their influence so you can see this directly with the with the British em Empire, which was in its early phase mercantilist. It was protectionist. Yes. But then, at a certain point, when they had achieved something approaching global global hegemony, when they controlled all the shipping lanes and all the rest of it, then it behooved them to switch their strategy from being protectionist to being free trade. Um, and I, I actually have a. Um, uh, quotation from a book here. This is by Pierre Vandenberg. It's a book called The Ethnic Phenomenon, which is a really interesting book where he basically argues that all ruling classes ever, ever have been uh, ethnically based. If you think like the Normans in this country mm. uh, were ethnically distinct from 
the Celts yeah, it, who were here it, before. Is is that the actually important thing, or, or is the important thing that it's a it's a group of friends, and that's just the easiest default option of, of getting? Yeah, there? exactly. That the yep. if 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 there's ethnic unity in the ruling class, they're yep. going to have a moral unity, and they're going to be together. And also yes. that everybody who's subjugated, no, I mean to bring come back to Genghis Khan. Hmm. Genghis Khan had a multicultural, multi-ethnic empire, a multi-religious empire. But everybody knew who was in charge, mm. and they didn't admit, at least at first, they didn't allow non-Mongols to be part of that ruling class. Well, and right. and the, the the CCP today, an expanding power, it's it's basically the Han, isn't it? it, it, it ex yes. Exactly, and you see this time and again, um, yes. and then during the later empire. You start to liberalise. You start to UK become more today. humanitarian, yeah. and then you have Rishi Sunak as the prime minister. Mm. Literally, somebody from a former colonial outpost is now the prime minister, mm. which is very—I uh, mean—that's reminiscent of what they did in the late Roman Empire. Mm. I mean, if you follow the Mongol and the Golden Horde and all of that, if you follow that down, mm. eventually those rulers revert to being non-Mongols. Or being yeah. Chinese, or whatever, or, or whatever it is, um, and then it, and then it breaks apart essentially. Um, but anyway, in this part of the book, he is looking at the economics of the British Empire in a completely different way from the way that somebody like Ludwig von Mises would explain it. Right? He wants to say that free trade is good, and free trade is always good. Um, uh, shall I just? Re I'll just sure. read what uh, sure. Vandenberg yeah. says, and. Um, yeah, so he says, Great Britain was the exception to all the, the other colonial powers. Starting in the late 18th century, and increasingly in the 19th, Britain became the champion of free trade. But it was in its interest to do so. Indeed, by then, Britain had become the first shipping nation in the world, the leading industrial economy, the supreme naval power, and the largest colonial country. In effect, the advocacy of free trade by Britain was little more than a disguised request for free commercial access to the whole world, including, of course, its rival colonies. Some of the weaker colonial powers, such as Belgium, had no option but to accept the quote-unquote opening of its colonies to free trade, but most resisted strenuously. Uh, the fostering of economic dependence of the colony on the metropole meant principally the prevention of self-sufficiency. This could be achieved negatively by discouraging the development in the colonies of industries that would compete with home industries. In the 19th century, for example, Britain, despite her advocacy of free trade for other countries, was concerned with Indian competition for the British textile industry, trying everything to stifle it. Uh, that's basically because they wanted yeah. Uh, you import raw cotton to us, we process it and turn it into clothes and sell it back so they, to you. So they shut down the native Indian processing. Yeah, they, ba they basically yeah. kind of stifle where it would have gone. So, so they, they want the colony at the bottom of the value chain, but all of the added value that comes from the, um, you know, the high return on investment stuff, that has to stay within our home yeah, borders. Yeah, and, 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 and in the case of India, they also created new industries where they, um, to compete with things they didn't control. Hmm. Good example is tea. Right, the, Brit no, the British Empire, they try to force China, using opium wars and so on, to come into its zone of influence. Hmm. But they didn't want to have to 
pay the Chinese exorbitant fees for tea, right? Okay. So they're like, well, what if we just grew tea in India? And basically a lot of our tea now, like Assam and all the rest of it, comes from the, Brit the British Empire saying, yes. right, well, we're going to cultivate tea in India. You guys grow the leaves, ship them across, and we'll make the tea bags. We will process it. We, 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 we have the artisans, you have the labourers. Exactly. Mm. Um, uh, I'll just carry on. Um, it says, uh, positively, economic dependency of the colony was fostered through highly specialised development of a few products for export. In the aggregate, the colonial world produced a wide range of goods, but the monoculture of cash crops often prevailed in individual colonies. Sugar and its byproducts in the Caribbean, cocoa in the Gold East, now Ghana, groundnuts in Senegal, sisal in, uh, where's that? Tanganyika, now Tanzania, and so on. Monoculture must um, meant extreme dependence since the crop in question was rarely a basic subsistence crop and was ah. scarcely ever consumed locally in significant amounts. So you can see what he's saying, right? That if you're on the Gold Coast yes. or if you're in the Caribbean, you probably wouldn't devote all of your farm space to growing cocoa or growing nuts or whatever. No, but, because you can't do anything with it. Right. But especially mean, you, if you don't have the, the artisans to actually turn it into anything useful. But, of course, in the network of the British Empire, mm. where you're es it essentially... It, 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 exactly, yes. and it's, it's valuable from, a, from the British interest point of view. Okay? Yes. Um, so, uh, I, I, mean, I, I mean, some people would say that one of the extreme cases of this, of course, was in Ireland, where the over-dependence on potatoes... So it, 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 it meant that it, yes. the economy of Ireland was overly specialised in that because it was being done for the benefit of British interests. It it wasn't the economy that Ireland would have had if it was just yes. running its own so affairs. So if you have a blight, you have a problem. Exactly, because mm. it was over-specialised. Um, the monoculture meant extreme uh, dependence since the crop in question was rarely a basic subsistence crop, scarcely ever consumed locally in significant amounts. The French, for example, produced wine in Algeria, a Muslim country where forbidden region, uh, where religion forbids alcoholic beverages. After nearly a quarter of a century of independence, Ghana, the world's leading producer of cocoa, still imports most of the little chocolate it consumes from Britain. It's still happening now. It's like, like right. you buy a bar of Cadbury's or something. That They've grown, yes. you know, they've grown it so over there. They've sent it over there. It's been produced and now it's sold. Now it's all back to Africa. I mean, it's, um, right. uh, I mean, I don't know if that's still true. It was true when he wrote this yes. book in the 80s. Um, probably even bought, but, but yeah, it probably is. I mean, Cadbury's yeah. is interestingly for this conversation has literally been bought, I think, by Kraft, which is an American company. So, uh, yes, so it, the same, yes, you can see that yeah. there's a different empire in town. And, uh, mm. and anyway, we'll carry on. Um, uh, not, not, yeah. Where, where were we? Um, the top there, not only. Yeah, not only were colonial cash crops not consumed locally, but they also took away much land from subsistence ag agriculture, thereby leading oftentimes to a decline in the native standard of living and a deterioration in the quality of the diet. High yield, low quality root crops, such as minoic and yams, for instance, were substituted for more varied and protein richer cereal and bean crops. In extreme cases, such as in the West Indies, 
food had to be massively imported because nearly all the available arable land was in sugarcane. Hmm. Uh, dependency thus generally meant impoverishment as well. Paradoxically, the more developed a colony was in terms of export pr productivity, the worse the diet of its population. You can see why that would happen. Yes, right? absolutely. Black South Africans, for instance, have one of the highest instances of kwashiwako, a nutritional disease caused by a starchy diet, even though their country is by far the most highly developed industrial power on the African continent, which now uh, with one of the continent's highest per capita income. An additional source of dependence of colonial economies was that the few commodities, whether mineral or agricultural, in which they specialized were highly susceptible to extraordinary price fluctuations on the world market, or alternatively were produced under conditions where the colonial power artificially imposed by force a very low price. Most of the economic imbalance and dependence created uh, during the colonial period, still adversely affects third world countries today. This continued economic dependence of formerly independent countries on the capitalist and to some extent on the socialist countries uh, and is now referred to as neo-colonialism. Now, what I'm saying there is that when the likes of Ludwig von Mises and Hayek mm. talk about the British Empire, they say, well, this was a period of laissez-faire. But, I mean, is there any, I mean, yes. okay, from a certain point of view, yes, there are free market principles at play. This area specializes, I mean, we're getting to Ricardo's comparative advantage taken to extreme well, here, right? Ghana has a comparative advantage when it comes to producing cocoa, and therefore, it should, the theory goes, it should yes. spend all of its time producing cocoa. Yes. Now, this... Mm works from the point of view of the British Empire yes. as the economy overall. But if you're Ghanaian, you may be thinking, hold on <laughs> yes. a second, I only grow chocolate here. I mean, yes. and, and and the chocolate and, bar is still produced. And the price bounces around and my access. <laughs> yeah, if, yeah. If, if you guys have another war, which you, which you will all the time, my supply, well, the West Indies, their supply of food coming in can be heavily disrupted by it. So um, I draw from this the lesson that a lot of ideology, whether it is protectionist economics or free market economics, are actually, when you really start to look at it, downstream from power and political interests. Um, so the, the power comes first, the power does stuff, and then somebody says, okay, I'm an academic, let's turn this into an ideology, and the ideology is basically a justification of what power has already done. Exactly. It's a post hoc justification for that which has already happened or is happening. Mm. Right. So in the case of the British Empire, you know, Adam Smith writes Wealth of Nations. Uh, Ricardo starts saying, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't be so protectionist anymore. There are benefits of free trade and so on. And mm. when it becomes in the interests of the ruling class to do this, they pick those off the shelf and they say, this is what we're right. going to do. Okay. And, and what's really interesting is that. Um, you can actually see the periods in which certain economists have been in and out of vogue, right? So in the, during the Great Depression, who was the great economist that came out of that? It was, it was Keynes, right? Mm. No, but if you look at Keynes, he was basically making exactly the same arguments as protectionists in the early British Empire. Like, 
I mean, he was literally just making yes. the same arguments that they were back the, then. They were certainly the, the useful arguments for those in power at the time. Because they were useful, and, mm. they, and Keynes was useful during the, during the Great Depression and during a time where empires were contracting and actually starting to face each other in mm. the aftermath of World War One and in the interwar period, right? Um, so, and then when America becomes the global hegemon, They've got a different model, haven't they? Right, but when America becomes the global hegemon, truly, you get the rise of the neoliberal. It's like, oh, well, maybe we should read this Hayek guy again. And uh, I mean, and some on the more extreme end would be like, well, yeah, what about that? Like, what well, Mises and all, all the rest of it. And they came into vogue for a while during the Thatcher and Reagan era. Um, so what, they, what, what is it that they were doing that these guys were now useful to them? Well, because the American empire was around getting towards the position that the British empire were in at the height of its power. You understand yes. what I'm saying? Yes. Now, and this is, was especially the case um, in the kind of early, uh, you know, with the downfall of the Soviet Union and when it became really obvious that the Soviet Union was going to fail right towards the end of the Cold War. And you get the birth of what they call neoliberalism, but really that was the post hoc justification for what we would call today the neoconservatism, which is the which yes. is actually the empire building part of but the project. And there, they there, and they go together. Do you see what I'm saying? There, there is there is very fundamentally a difference in the economic approach that the U.S. empire has to the British, even though the U.S. don't call themselves an empire, but they, yes. but they are they are an empire. But the, but the British one was, you know, you will, you will give us your stuff and we'll turn it into something. And, you know, that, that was effectively the economic model. The economic for the model is basically they, what they export is, is pieces of paper with the president's face on it. It is, it is um, U.S. treasuries. It, it is dollars. That, all they do is export dollars. Um, and, and, and they invite countries, would you like to sell your oil? Um, would you like to settle your trade in dollars? You don't have to. But if you don't, you will be invaded and, and a spike will be going up your bum and um, there'll be a show trial and all the rest of it. So so generally people say, yes, I, I would like to trade in dollars. It creates a massive demand for, for dollars all around the world. Um, they send those out and get stuff in. So they, so they are getting tribute like any other empire. Yes. They're just doing it. They're just, there's a few extra steps involved. But, but what's underlying all of that, of course, is, is their power. It's yeah. Yes, and I mean, people talk about like the gold-backed dollar or the oil-backed dollar, mm. but really, it's the force-backed dollar. It's the aircraft carrier. It, it is. Dollar. It is actually, or if you want to be strictly, it's force-backed unlimited credit expansion. Yes, which is essentially what they, because the unique position of America in the world is that they can basically inflate to infinity. Mm. I mean, I don't know what the current debt level is, but it's in the it's in the trillion. Thirty-two and a half trillion. I mean, thirty-two and a half trillion. Mm. Now, if you have a look at some of the, um, uh, I'll give you a good example, right? Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, right? Mm. Now, in the, in the 90s, uh, Zimbabwe was coming across some economic problems, let's just say, unsurprisingly, mm. he was a Marxist, etc. you know. Um, but one of the things that Mugabe wanted to do was to inflate his way out of it, right? But there's nowhere for those Zimbabwean dollars to go apart from Zimbabwe. But what, you see what? What happens is that when any other country starts to want to play this game, mm. well, that's when the IMF, that's when the IMF come in, mm. which is basically a kind of proxy for U.S. power, 
and says, no, we're going to put in credit controls. We're going to put in, you're going to liberalize your economy. We're going to put, you have to jump through these hoops. We'll give you various loans and things like that. Um, hmm. But you don't get to play this game that the US government does. This yeah. is just, this is our privilege well, and to do this. sort of you know? auto inbuilt sanctions as well, because if you don't cooperate with what it is we are inviting you to do, um, well, there is military force, but even without the military force, it's okay, your supply of dollars is going to be cut off. And then good luck trying to buy oil, which has to be traded in, in, in oil, uh, sorry, in dollars. And if you don't have that oil, you cannot run your agricultural machine. You cannot, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can't even run your military, you can't do anything practically without, without oil. So there is, an, uh, there is another way in which I would say the US model and the British model are different as well which is that, and I mean, this is not partly, this is partly of America's making and partly of technology's making, okay? Which is that in the 19th century, Ricardo, when he did his law of comparative advantage or uh, law, uh, law of association, as Mises calls it, he, he actually, if you read him carefully, holds two assumptions constant. So, so what were his assumptions? And his and so I mean you know the basic theory. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing most of your viewers know some basic economics, right? Mm. They've read their Thomas Sowell and so on. Mm. Um, you know, so if uh, if you make wine and I make steel, uh, say like if you've got an advantage in wine yeah. and I've got an advantage in steel, mm. it makes sense for me to uh, trade with you and you to trade with me. Mm. What, now, what that means is that all of the wine makers and all of the orchard, grape orchards or whatever, uh, the vineyards, yeah. yeah. Um, so so, so if, if, if I'm in Winchester and we've got an advantage in wine, we should go full on. You should go full on wine. wine. Yes. And we should allow our wine merchants to go out of business. Yes. Because, and, because and, we are reordering the, the, the essential ingredients, the, the land, yeah. the labor, the capital. And, and the, so that means yeah. that my steel but my steel production goes up because I mm. specialize in that. But by the same token, your steel yes. works will close down or whatever. Okay. But, but I can actually have more steel because by, I sell yes. my wine and yeah. therefore I get, I get more wine. You've, you you've get got more steel. I've got an advantage. Yeah. We both end up with more wine and steel than if we did it, it ourselves. Exactly. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.